You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, November 11th, Veterans Day, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, the California report goes to Glasgow, where Latino power players are flexing their muscle at the International Climate Conference. A growing number of prosecutors are confronting fentanyl overdoses by filing murder charges. And after a roundup of regional news and weather, Bravehearts looks into 211 Connecting Point, and we end with an essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Laura Clivens in San Francisco. The Orange County District Attorney's Office is joining a growing list of prosecutors across the state and country that are planning to file murder charges against drug dealers who manufacture or sell fentanyl that results in a person's death. Fentanyl is an extremely potent opioid. OC District Attorney Todd Spitzer says this is a way to confront the deadly fentanyl epidemic. We have seen in Orange County a 1,000% increase over the last five years as a result of overdoses and deaths from fentanyl, intentionally being disguised as other less potent drugs. Riverside, San Bernardino, San Luis Obispo, and Contra Costa counties have already started charging fentanyl dealers with murder. In fact, Riverside currently has seven of these cases pending. Federal prosecutors are also charging suspected fentanyl dealers with murder, but some in the legal community say these actions go beyond what the law allows. A bill in the California legislature attempting to make these charges legal statewide failed. Several defense attorneys also argue that increasing penalties for drug offenses will not save lives. Oakland could soon become the first city in California to stop testing many of its workers for pot use. The current test doesn't just show if someone is under the influence on the job. It produces a positive result if someone's used marijuana up to three weeks prior. Dwight McElroy is chief steward for Service Employees International Union, Local 1021. Over the years, we have been looking at this internally and saying, hey, you know what, this is not right. This is not accurate, and it disproportionately impacts individuals who are very young and individuals of color. Employees can still be tested if the federal government requires it or if they are suspected of on-the-job drug use. The ordinance has been approved by the Public Safety Committee. Now the city administration will discuss it with local unions. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com SF MoMA, presenting the world premiere of Joan Mitchell, a stunning retrospective of over 80 works by the trailblazing painter who made art on her own terms. Learn more at sfmoma.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. California's state delegation to the International Climate Conference this week is packed with Latino power players. California is, uh, is rolling deep, as they say, at this year's COP. 
That's Coachella Assemblyman Eddie Garcia speaking from Glasgow, Scotland. KQED's Raquel Maria Dillon has more on what these elected officials, experts and activists are doing there and the current state of the climate movement. Latinos in California are not of the same mind when it comes to climate policy. Our experiences of the warming planet are different and our access to power varies. At COP, some Californians are credentialed insiders in the inner circle, what's called the blue zone. Others are experts and advocates, credentialed for the green zone, where they lobby and network. Protesters demonstrate to be heard outside that secure area. The idea is that when people are coming in through the into the blue zone, they see all this like advocacy from the green zone. That's Marce Gutierrez-Graudinch from the Ocean Conservation Group Azul. A veteran of several cops, she says California's policymakers are much in demand. Assemblyman Eddie Garcia from Coachella has access to the Blue Zone, where he says our state is an international model for climate policy. And that's California's role at this conference, is to continue to be a global leader in climate change. We produce emissions just like any other industrialized economy, but we also produce climate solutions. California is where new ideas get tested in the real world. Alvaro Sanchez, vice president of policy at the Greenlining Institute, is one step removed from that inner circle. He says the view from the green zone is that California has lots to share, but it's also an oil-producing state where some residents, disproportionately working-class people of color, suffer from extreme heat and air pollution. We see over and over again that people of color are very concerned about climate, that people of color want government to take action on climate. He says this is not your abuelita's environmental movement. The focus is on how the planet impacts people, especially health, opportunities, and environmental justice. In California, and again, we still have a lot of work to do, but the conversation is a little bit more intersectional, where, you know, when we talk about climate, we're also talking about access to technology, and we're also talking about economic opportunity. He and Gutierrez Graudinch both described being shaped by the frustrating and isolating experience of being the only person of color in the room. You know, folks would have like meetings in the yacht club in Orange County and wonder why no more people came in. Right. There was a lot of like, hey, Marcela, can you bring some like Latinos for this? As if I had baskets of people. Right. So rather than tokenizing Latinos, she's trying to make us all into climate activists. At a recent protest in San Francisco, I met Marco Limas. He was heading to Glasgow as a representative of Urban Tilth. He took his first international plane trip to protest outside COP, and his goals were more radical. Infiltrate all the spaces where they're trying to make big decisions and make sure that our voices are heard and that they can't ignore us. Limas grew up in the shadow of Richmond's refineries. He doesn't trust that anyone at COP has his interests in mind. And that's why he's out on the street. And it's just so frustrating because, like, like they're just doing everything to silence us. To Lima's California is not the model. It's where city kids get asthma and farm workers die of heat exhaustion. He says his generation will spend their whole lives dealing with climate disasters. Sanchez agrees, but his strategy is different. He says building a constituency is more effective. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're in Sacramento or at COP. Um, at, it's the political capital that you have behind your advocacy that's going to make all the difference. Veteran activists like Sanchez appreciate the energy of young organizers because it keeps the pressure on the decision makers. 
And that's the goal that Latino climate activists all share. For The California Report, I'm Raquel Maria Dillon. And that's The California Report for Thursday, November 11th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Laura Clivens. Thanks for listening. In regional news, the debate over so-called critical race theory arrived in Nevada County Wednesday evening. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza has this report. Nevada County citizens, both young and old, crowded into the Nevada Union High School wrestling gym on Wednesday night to listen to a presentation by a group called Protecting American Ideals. The goals of the group, according to presenter Judy Wood, are to, quote, rid Nevada County schools of critical race theory and to promote in our schools an honest, patriotic view of America that respects our history, our ideals, our rights, and the God-given dignity of every individual, end quote. The group was scheduled to present at the board's October 13th meeting, but asked to present on November 10th, during the first in-person meeting of the Board of Trustees since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's District Superintendent Brett McFadden. They had um, came to the board and made a request to do this particular presentation. This was our first meeting tonight in person since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. We offered them uh, the October 13th agenda. The group asked to be moved to this because this meeting because they wanted to do it in person. And so we um, granted that. And so recognizing that we were hearing that we would get a large crowd from both sides of the item, we uh, secured this location. At the meeting, Mr. McFadden said that the written public comments received in advance were largely against the presentation, only receiving four written public comments in support. In-person public comment at the meeting was limited to five minutes per speaker, and only 15 people were allowed to speak. Afterwards, each trustee gave a statement in response to the presentation and public comments. I spoke to Anthony Pritchett, the student board representative. My name is Anthony Pritchett. I am in 12th grade, and I serve as a student board representative to the district board. So I am um, a conduit between my my peers and my constituents, um, between them and the, the governing board members who are on the board. I asked him what he thought the student body felt about CRT. The student population would, would love um, that, that education about our past is, is taught correctly and taught truthfully. And, and I do feel that most of our students are hoping for change and hoping for safety and hoping for, for education to be taught correctly and truthfully so we can, we can build a better future. So that, that being said, that sort of implies that at the moment, none of these things are being taught or at least not being taught in the capacity that you and perhaps other students would like. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. There, there definitely are very, very good programs and classes already in place, um, movements that are already happening that are working towards common goal, but we still have a long ways to go. And I definitely think that the, our, our younger student body um, as a whole acknowledges that and would, would like to see that. Despite the heated debate, Superintendent McFadden said there are no plans to take action on the topic presented by Protecting American Ideals. This was an informational item. This group asked to do this. We don't normally do this. Um, we don't usually, this board meetings are typically 
an open, transparent meeting where the board conducts its business. And so we don't um, provide a, a town hall approach. If we want a public meeting, we'll do a public meeting like a town hall. Um, but this was an anomaly uh, that we that the board decided to, to try out uh, this evening. And so um, there won't be there isn't any plan f uh, future action on this item. It was just informational. In regional weather, a mixture of clouds and sun with daytime highs reaching into the mid-70s over the weekend. The next week looks dry and mild with areas of late night and morning fog in the valley. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 55. On Friday in Nevada City and Grass Valley, sunny with a high of 72 and a low of 56. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low around 30. On Friday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 66 and a low of 31. In Sacramento tonight, a few clouds with temperatures in the high 40s. On Friday in Sacramento, partly cloudy with a high of 70 and a low of 47. In this week's edition of Brave Hearts, Betty Louise sits down with Lindsay Gordon and Ulysses Palencia of 211 Connecting Point in Grass Valley to learn the mission of the organization and what it means to be in its coordinated entry system. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Bravehearts. This is Betty Louise. I'm here for another episode of Bravehearts. And I am at the offices of Connecting Point with a couple of very special people. Ulysses Palencia and Lindsay Gordon. And they are a couple of people that also have interaction with homeless people. And so we're going to find out exactly what that's all about. So Ulysses, why don't you get us started? Like, how did you land here? I'm at Connecting Point. So I actually used to work at a local cafe here in Grass Valley where a few of the staff members at Connecting Point would frequent. And I was told one day by a patron that there was a position for a bilingual call agent within 211. And they intrigued me when they started explaining what the position did and that it helped the, the Spanish speakers within the community. So at that point, I, I knew I had to, at the very least, um, apply. And then Lindsay ended up with my resume and my cover letter, and that's how it all unfolded. Oh, awesome. So what exactly is your title? I am the contact center manager. Contact center mm -hmm. manager. So 211. Okay, great, great. And we'll get into that a little bit more. So Lindsay, how about you? How did you end up in this sort of position? 
I'm actually a really great example of how Connecting Point can help people in different ways. I came to Nevada County in 2017 after I lost my home in Sonoma County in the fires and I was part of the employment services program which connects people who are on cash aid with jobs and job preparedness, job readiness skills and one of my teachers said you would be a great candidate for the call center manager position here. So I applied, got hired. I've since been promoted to the 211 program manager and Ulysses took my old position. So you had your own experience with having 211 serve you mm -hmm. when you arrived and uh, I want to hear more about that too. But let's just get some overview of Connecting Point. What is the mission? of this organization? Well, I would say originally Connecting Point came about to help seniors and people with disabilities. And we've since really expanded to helping anyone in the community, really anyone with barriers to accessing services. But additionally, we help people with tax appointments and, and really anyone who has questions about social services, resources within the community, we're able to connect them. And more recently, we've been disseminating COVID information for the county. So taking the county's COVID calls, helping people schedule vaccines and, and COVID tests. So really a broad range of, of things that we do. Excellent. So what sort of relationship do you have with the county? So we're contracted by Public Health to handle their COVID calls, disseminate basic COVID information, help people schedule vaccines, people who, who may have barriers to scheduling on their own. Internet access can be patchy in different parts of the county. So yeah, so we'll help people schedule who have barriers and handle basic calls about information, mandates, state orders, that kind of stuff. There's so much COVID information to wade through, so we, we like to help people make sense of it. Yeah, I know I have done some volunteer work for Sierra Roots, and one of the things that we said when people called us for any motel room or whatever, is like, have you registered with 211? Mm -hmm. That was like our first very step. first question. So what does that mean to be registered with 211? Sure, so in terms of people experiencing homelessness, we have a process called coordinated entry that we take them through. And essentially what that allows us to do is a couple different things. It allows us to get them into a shelter if they qualify and get them onto what's called the by name list, which is essentially a, a waiting list for long-term housing within the community. So that's really the first step, uh, going through coordinated entry to having access to housing providers in the community and being able to work with those providers to get long-term housing and get into the shelter. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Sometimes I sit around and think about the difference between loneliness and solitude. Why is it that one night I'm just delighted to be alone, reading or puttering, 
stoking the fire and listening to rain hit the tin water heater vent. While the next I'm irascible and despairing in the same exact circumstances, sure, I'll die of loneliness. Not even the cats can save me. They have each other, and I'm a solitary, miserable human with no source of solace in this life. It gets a little melodramatic, as you can see, but it feels all too real when I'm in it. Long, long ago, my family used to drive from San Francisco to Carmel on Friday nights to spend the weekend. We'd leave after supper, the three oldest kids lengthwise in the folded-down back seat of my mom's white Buick like sardines, and the youngest horizontally at our feet. Our parents hoped we'd sleep for the two-hour ride, but I rarely did. I tried to snag the passenger-side spot behind Mom, because then when we drove down Broadway to the freeway on-ramp, I could look up and see the go-go dancer. Did other cities have a girl dancing high above their red-light district in 1967? Certainly not Boston, the only place we went. She was in a little phone-booth-sized cubicle at the top of a pole, several stories higher than the club she advertised. She had to climb the pole herself. You could see the ladder of bars for her feet, wearing those calf-high white boots that defined the era and a little bathing suit-like outfit with lots of fringe. She stayed up there all alone and danced, a teaser for the sexy goings-on below. I don't remember if there was music playing as we passed, and I don't know if she had any piped in. I just see her through my wide 12-year-old eyes doing the Watusi, the pony, and the swim, lit like a lighthouse beacon above the street and getting smaller and smaller as we merged with Friday night traffic on 101. When we came home on Sunday nights, the booth was empty. I think some of the loneliness of my childhood got wrapped up in the image of this girl, a strange but potent symbol of the adulthood I was fast approaching. I always wondered if she liked it by herself, looking at the lights of the city, or if she was lonely. Was she delighted not to be stripping every night and groped by strange men, or was she missing the tips and the camaraderie of the other girls who worked there? In 1967, we still called women girls. Did she take cigarette breaks? Was she afraid of heights? You may have noticed that the human condition is a mercurial thing. All our lives we negotiate its ups and downs, its pain, elation, general random unfairness, and blinding good luck. Some days this is easier than others. When I get so lonely, I think it will kill me. I remember that mysterious girl in the white boots, her knees lifting and her fringe swaying from side to side. At least, I say to myself by way of comfort, I'm not half naked, 30 feet high in a plexiglass phone booth doing the Watusi. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, November 11th, 2021, the day we honor our military veterans. And for fans of Spinal Tap, it's also Nigel Tufnell Day. 
Don't touch that dial. Coming up next at 6.30, a new edition of The Climate Report with host Martin Webb. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. At 8 p.m., it's time for Jazz Workshop. And at 10 p.m., Road Dog Radio. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. As always, thanks for listening. Check out our website, kvmr.org, to hear expanded versions of many of our stories and interviews. Or you can listen to the KVMR Evening News wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Watershed at the Owl, open Thursday through Saturday at 2 p.m. for indoor and outdoor dining offering locally sourced seasonal menu items from salads to steaks and more. Reservations encouraged. Mill Street, Grass Valley, watershedattheowl.com. And Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. This is Joyce Miller wishing you a wonderful Thursday evening. ¶¶